Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Who you are takes everything into account. You know, your sound and the way your face is structured, like th those things have something to do with each other because they're who you are. Hello and welcome back to Beautiful Lives, the podcast in which I, Madeline Spencer, am joined by guests to share some of the challenges they faced and triumphs they've enjoyed during their life as well as touching on the relationship between their inner and outer self and where beauty memories and rituals have had an impact. Today, I'm joined by the classical violinist, Nicola Benedetti. One of the most sought after violinists of her generation, Nicola has been showered with awards and accolades, including a Grammy, a classical Brit award, and an MBE, and then a CBE. She has played in some of the most prestigious venues across the world, including the Royal Albert Hall, Wigmore Hall, and Westminster Abbey, and has released 11 albums. Now, Nicola is on a mission to share the joy of classical music and to challenge the idea of it being an elitist career path with her Benedetti Foundation, which went from strength to strength during lockdown thanks to virtual sessions. In this episode, Nicola and I talk about her extraordinary career, but also the woman who has navigated that experience and how she's kept such a cool head in the face of her success. She's refreshingly candid, and I especially loved her admissions that she arrived at music boarding school without some of the classical music knowledge of her peers, and that owning a Stradivarius is a source of both joy, but a little bit of nervousness about how enormously precious the instrument is. On beauty, Nicola is also an open book, and she relays stories in this episode about how her mum's more avant-garde style didn't quite work for her in classical music circles, why she sticks to two beauty brands, and how perfume just doesn't do it for her. I'm delighted that this episode is powered by the Australian tooth whitening brand High Smile, whose new and improved teeth whitening kit is incredibly easy to use and really works to brighten teeth without triggering pain or sensitivity thanks to the PAP Plus in the formula. I'll tell you more halfway through the episode, so for now, kick back and enjoy. Here's Nicola. You were born in 1987 in Scotland to an Italian father and Italian Scottish mother. Could you tell us a bit about the culture in your household and what those first years of your life were like? Yes, so my parents are both um, extremely strong characters, definitely around mealtimes and a sense of family togetherness and uh, a sort of vibrant, a vibrant commitment to family, which sounds strange, but it's just how I, how I remember it. You know, our, our family connections weren't passive at all. So that's such a, a, a vivid um, memory of, of, of childhood, you know, huge, overwhelming meals for for family and friends that were constantly round, and um, our our house was very much a kind of centre for that. So um, there was always always people around. Um, and further to that, my mum and dad are are both the least lazy people ever, and they're extremely sort of active and I guess you could say uh, ambitious um, and I don't th that word always has a sort of negative connotation to it but I don't mean it in that way at all it's just um, they'd come from a certain 
upbringing and environment and uh, were willing to do whatever they felt was, you know, necessary to really just make sure they, they made the best of their own circumstances and they hoped the best for, um, they hoped the same for both me and my sister. Um, so, you know, starting to play instruments early and working hard at school and mm. all the rest. <laughs> so before you started playing music, I think that was at, at four. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, at four. But before that, was there a music culture in your household? Was it something that was prevalent? Just some um, pop music, actually. Um, my dad always loved um, Bee Gees, ABBA, Rod Stewart. Um, uh, eventually Shania Twain um, <laughs> he's a man after um, my own heart that's all the music yeah. I love too <laughs> um, and my mum too you know she always loved dancing my mum and dad actually met dancing and were both great dancers and absolutely mm. loved that so um, it was uh, more that sort of music that was was at home. I mean, we were the sort of my mum, you know, around Christmas time, she'd always have all the Christmas hits on and she'd be dancing around the house. And mm. um they they enjoyed the kind of escapism of music. Um classical music wasn't introduced really until um my sister and I began began playing. Mm. And if your mum was into these kind of big pop stars, I wonder if the appearance of those pop stars, I'm especially thinking of ABBA and that kind of blue eye shadow, whether that was something she mimicked or whether cosmetics played a role in your young life. Oh, my mum is hugely and always was fashionable and fashion conscious and um, beauty conscious. Um, and I would say encouraged both me and my sister to be so too. And um, you know, I would I would always love seeing my mum get ready and getting dressed up and she always had beautiful makeup and um it was a, a, appearance and being um presentable and making an effort was and is important to her. Mm-hmm. Um she she's somebody that will will never she gets ready beautifully every single day of her life you know it doesn't matter if she never sees the soul if she's home alone all day she will um go through her routine and and um and be you know looking like she's going out you know and um um and she's just always uh sort of i guess connected that to a certain um pride and also routine and um just a kind of uh, in order to feel like the day started that's one of the things you do mm. um so so certainly um that was a part of our our influence growing up mm. and did that instill any covetousness in you were there, were there any products she had that you wanted or anything that you saw that you thought i can't wait to be an age where i can do that Oh yeah, all sorts of things. But um, but then of course um, your own um, pop cultural Im- influences start to sort of take over, and mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I was probably more interested in in dressing like the Spice Girls than I was um, dressing like my mom. You know, by the time <laughs> I was nine or ten, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, there was there was also um, the, the American uh, children in in American films that had very ca- a very casual and very sort of. Um, like they'd made themselves up, you know, mm. sense of dress. So wearing leggings and skirts over leggings and sort of a lot of layered clothing. Like I was always just looking at that and thinking, I'm desperate to dress like that. And I remember begging my mum on the, the the day of school where we could, um, you know, when you could wear your own clothes. I'm begging my mum if I could dress like that, if I could please wear leggings. Um, but you know, a lot of the photos of both me and my sister when we're younger, we are we are dressed immaculately by our mum, mm. and we had you know slightly curled hair, and <laughs> you know she um she she made a lot of um, effort mm. for us as well as herself. <laughs> and your mum also had a big effect in your approach to playing the violin. You've said that she was very focused. And that her approach was always, if you're going to do something, do it well. So if you've got to play the violin, try it the best of your ability before you decide that it's not for you. So when you started at four, I can imagine that, completely correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine that maybe at four you weren't the best violin player because you were four. So how (laughs) how did that attitude help you to really basically focus and home in on it? Oh, enormously. If you try to do something that's difficult, you you always are going to want to give up at many, many um, hurdles. And the violin is is insanely hard. So um, uh, without that uh, strictness and sense of, you know, this you don't have to like every second of this, mm-hmm. um, but it's an investment and an enri- enrichment and something that will be worth it for you. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm only grateful for that because um, I, I think <clears throat> we have such a strange um, relationship to when something is difficult and challenging, and when you get to that point where a parent cannot be the, the, the friend of the child, you know, um, there, there's reasoning and an understanding um, the perspective of a six-year-old, um, you know, maybe isn't the best thing for them. I mean, everybody is individual, but it largely depends on what level of love and interest you have for that one thing. If it compels you to do it, but it's still very difficult then I think from a parent's point of view or a teacher's point of view, you have a lot more capacity to to push. Mm. Um, if love is not there for that thing at all, like if, if there there is no um, compulsion, there's no love towards it, then I would say you always then run a risk, you know, when mm. you're when you're kind of enforcing um, discipline towards something that somebody just really does not like. So um, I, I think we were we were very lucky that we both loved both me and my sister loved the violin. We loved playing. Um, we loved music. Um, that does not mean that we loved every minute of practice and everything that it took to be able to improve. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think we're both 
very grateful to our mum for kind of pushing us through those. those yeah, that's also such a helpful approach for anything in life that you want to do where there's there's always going to be moments where it's challenging and boring. And I think actually to have that instilled in you at a young age serves you very, very well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. So you were 10 when you started studying at the Menuhin School. How did you find being away from home and having such a singular focus at such a tender age? Well, to learn from a teacher like the one I had at Menuhin School, Natasha Boyarski, um, was worth it. And when I say worth it, I mean it was it was worth all the other homesickness and not fitting in and... Oh, I mean, just the endless tears, you know, within those the, the first six months, certainly. Um, but, you know, I, I, I always practiced, I, although it was a school that had, you know, 50 students of all ages and everybody was everybody that was there played either a string instrument or piano everybody was there was supposedly dedicated to music. Actually, there were some young people around me that weren't all that keen on practicing. And I, and I was, and that was, a, um, it was just not um, embraced really. So I was kind of teased a lot. And I felt that um, the, the excitement about learning to play better and actually then seeing how quickly I was improving with a new set of, um, you know, information, a new load of information. Mm. Um, it kind of, anything was, was worth that to me. Mm. So um, I, uh, and, uh, you know, and soon enough, I, I I did make friends and I settled in fine, but um, mm-hmm. it was, uh, yeah, it was a tough beginning. And throughout that time, you were studying classical music. You were really immersed in that world, but you have mentioned that like many young people that you were excited by pop music as well listening to pop music at Menuhin school was quite rare um there was a few years of a sort of certain age I would say maybe 12 to 14 13 to 15 that sort of age group in the girls dorms where um you know I remember when Alicia Keys brought out her first single Mm. um a number of people bought that CD. Um, there was a Michael Jackson kind of wave that swept through the school that I definitely was a part of. Um, there were, you know, various um, like things that were far more transient and far more just whatever was popular at that moment. And then things that were, you know, a kind of pop star that, that had lasted decades, like Michael Jackson, that obviously young young people were just experiencing for the first time and discovering for the first time and then would listen to a lot. Um, but, um, it, I mean, I, in the boys' dormitory, it's, I always found that really interesting. They listen to almost exclusively classical music. And of course, we listen to a lot of classical music as well. Mm. Um, but actually, if I look back now, I think that's something that could have been nurtured differently at the school in terms of just um, like if you came from a family where you grew up listening to a load of different symphonies and quartets and you understood the the breadth of of what classical music had to offer, it was such a vast, wide 
um, like deep uh, array of music. And actually, I I had only really known what was written for violin, and even that I didn't know all of, mm. um, because I hadn't come from that sort of culture. And um, I think in terms of in terms of listening and absorbing other other um, other classical music, I I wish I had done that differently or done more of that when I was at the school. And was there also snobbery then there between? you know, the kids who came from the kind of background where they knew absolutely everything about classical music and those who didn't? Certainly, yes. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of a lot of faking it for me, you know, just mm. trying to pretend like mm. I, I remember um, uh, not knowing what Stravinsky Rite of Spring was and I was right. 11. Um, I, I didn't know, I hadn't heard of that piece before and so I made the grave error, like in a kind of social context of of saying, like, what is that? <laughs> it, was like I, it was like I'd committed a crime, you know, I just like, they just couldn't believe that I didn't know the right of spring. Um, and, uh, you know, those things do have an impact in terms of what you're then for me any of the type of person that I am um I would say I have a level of you know self-conscious um kind of like um fear so I I probably just shared shared less of what I what I didn't know (laughs) and just tried to kind of quietly absorb as much as possible that happened at 11, but then in my notes, I've got this other thing you did at 11 that is in stark contrast with that, which is that you first played Wigmore Hall, which is staggering for any classical musician. But at 11, that's that's pretty enormous. What do you remember about that performance? And were you very conscious of going on stage and being seen and performing in that respect? The, my memory um, was uh, that during that first year I had sort of restarted the violin um I had a number of technical issues with physically how I held the instrument it was my um my adaptation of the way we had been taught um Mm. with Suzuki method I had kind of taken it to an extreme that was not very technically sound or helpful so my teacher had sort of started me again I was just playing the open strings of the instrument for um, the best part of that first year. Mm-hmm. So s- six months into Menuhin School, I was playing, you know, baby repertoire. I wasn't, I wasn't playing anything nearly as difficult as what I was playing before I attended the school. And then um, within those last, you know, two or three months, I was finally given a, a real piece of music that was pretty challenging. And um, the rate at which I was improving um, was, you know just incomparable to any improvement I had managed before that so the the excitement of that and the um the the thrill of being able to make a certain kind of sound and do things on the instrument that I couldn't do before was um oh it was just it was just the best the best (laughs) thing ever so um yeah it was a real source of excitement Mm. And you were performing throughout your teenage years consistently at places like Westminster Abbey, St James's Palace, with you know the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, London Symphony Orchestra. I've got all of these big names, but that time tends to come with some turbulence for many. How did you steer such a steady ship throughout, particularly when it comes to your career? 
Uh, I think it looks steady from the outside. Um, and and in, in all honesty, I never had a real a sudden teenage rebellion. Um, I never had a super, like, suddenly difficult dip or suddenly didn't practice for a year or I, I, I never had anything extreme. Um, but in small ways, it felt hugely turbulent to me. It's more the the acute awareness of who you are and what you can and can't do that I think is so difficult at that mm. at that age because before that walking onto stage was um, second nature and and um, I hadn't been so um, aware of my surroundings and it's that awareness and and I have a tendency to to overthink anyway so it's it's the awareness plus the um, um, the 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 amount of thought and analysis that suddenly comes into your mind that's deeply unhelpful. Mm. <laughs> Having to go on stage, particularly I'm thinking then from an aesthetic perspective, when your looks are changing and your body is changing, whether that came into play in your head or whether you just were always completely fine with being seen. Um, that's a really good question because... I oh, I definitely had plenty of insecurities about being being seen. Um, you know, I'm, my older sister, four years older, um, I was I was always probably trying to look more like her or be more like her. Um, she's like um, the the cooler older sister, you know. <laughs> so um, I. I, I had all yeah all sorts of insecurities about my hair, about my skin. Mm. Um, I I was always comfortable in clothes. Like I, I my, my weight never really fluctuated. I always felt um, very um, like I was I was steady in terms of what I could wear or whatever. The, 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 that wasn't so much a um, an issue. But oh, the, you know that said, the awkwardness of sight of of styling yourself during that time is you know. <laughs> Um, but but funnily enough, actually, um, the times that I was most seen was, of course, on stage. And um, the concert dresses I had during those years, I was I was very um, I was lucky to come across the wonderful designer Amanda Wakeley when I was I was only about fifteen or sixteen, and they're really expensive dresses. Um, but I had like two um, dresses that I wore, of course, absolutely to death, and. Um, and uh, it was just a style that was so comfortable and fit so well. And um, I, I, I was lucky to, and also to have to have that kind of support and guidance from my mum. Mm. But I, I remember, I remember, you know, my mum's style was always quite um, contemporary as well. And I remember um, going to do a couple of things in Europe um, where, you know, surrounded by a lot of other musicians and things that I was wearing had been, kind of put together by my mum or mm. like suggested by her or I had bought them with her and it was um they were they were like way too fashionable for <laughs> for the people <laughs> that I was with <laughs> and I remember one or two girls like commenting on certain outfits that was like you know what it, I can't remember what the outfits were but there were some sort of um uh, you know, there was some kind of apparatus on the on the outfit that was mm. very particular. You know, mm. stood out, and um, it was just um, a bit too much for them. I think I noticed that they mention it a lot in the press. 
do you think it's completely fine to add that element into commentary about your work? I think it's okay. I I have never um, minded it. Um, if if I if I did, then um, I may have made different choices. Um, I also don't think that a comment on appearance um, is is a negligible. You know, I, I I don't not just a comment, but but the fact of appearance is negligible. I. I think that who you are takes everything into account. You know, your sound and the way your face is structured, like those things have something to do with each other because they're who you are. You know, I have more more of a problem with commentary that, that wants everybody to look exactly the same and expects a certain sort of characterless um, like s- symmetry and similarity between everyone. But but commenting on how an ap- appearance comes across, I, I don't see that as inherently a bad thing. And I also think that live performance is, is a, um, it's a, your physical presence is there. You know, we're not behind the screen. It's not listening on the radio. So why try to kind of pretend like it is. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I would say there's a lot of um, kind of um, s- subduedness and formality about the, the classical stage that is intended to focus the listener as much as possible on um, what you're hearing. Um, but I think, you know, a performance in, in a concert hall that you're sharing this experience with thousands of people, everybody's there together. Um, every 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 one of your senses is picking up something, and that that's fine. You know, I I, I don't I don't see that as superficial. Mm. Yeah, and also, I mean, just thinking about say the way those concert halls look, they are designed to please the eye as well. They're not just acoustic places, right? Absolutely, uh, especially historic ones. Mm. Um, the entire experience is is a sensory one of. Uh, coming at you from all dimensions. Mm -hmm. You've um, mentioned senses a few times in the past few minutes. I wonder which other senses you derive joy from. I know you mentioned cooking um, from when you were younger, but are you someone who's, you know, finds scent as alluring or is as into sort of looking at beautiful artwork as you are listening to beautiful music? I would say music is the strongest of those. Um, uh, in terms of um, scent, uh, if if anything to do with perfume comes into that, I would say um, I am just the worst ever. And the, uh, basically, I I I have um, I, I I can't wear perfume. It, it makes me feel unwell, um, wow. <laughs> which might sound really strange, but it just does. Sorry, does it make you feel unwell when other people wear perfume, or is it just you? No, it's just me. Um, I, I I wouldn't say I love I love strong perfume anyway on on mm. anybody, but um, but on myself, I tried so many times um, in my teenage years, my early twenties. I just tried so many times. I thought it was would just be so elegant and lovely to wear a perfume, and um, I just couldn't do it. I just would mm-hmm. just make myself feel um, really unwell, but. Um, no, and and artwork, um, yes, I, I have very um, strong and visceral um, reactions to 
to artwork, but uh, more than anything else, it's the beauty of um, either nature or uh, or um, or or the the creation of man. So um, looking at um, the old and new and the um, op- opposites put together within a city. You know, I, I can, you just can let me roam around any city, town, whatever. I just, I, I, I have a very kind of emotional reaction to um, the, the things that people have created and um, the ugly next to the beautiful and, you know, soft next to hard and mm. i i um i have uh um a, a real uh i i i kind of feel people's journey through looking at the accumulation of what people have built for all sorts of different purposes mm. um so yeah i, I and I, the other thing i'm my senses are hugely um like uh, heightened to and, and alert to and it was something I, I hadn't really come across um anybody else that had had that experience in such a um such a strong way until I was reading um a couple of years ago the the American short story um you know they put out that that uh, volume every year and mm. um a lot of stories from the New Yorker and there was one in particular with a woman the entire story was just about her reaction to um, to wind, rain, um, uh, sunshine—you know—an emotional, visceral reaction to um, very small changes in 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 weather—and um, I'm exactly like that. And it was one of those strange moments where I thought maybe nobody else experiences this quite like I do, but this book certainly did. As promised in the intro, I'm circling back with some more information about High Smiles' updated teeth whitening kit, which is pretty remarkable, both because it offers instant results and because it does so without sensitivity, thanks to PAP+, which is a clinically proven whitening agent that oxidizes stains without creating the free radicals that cause the enamel damage and sensitivity. So basically, your nerves are protected and you're left without really sensitive teeth. I've been using the kit and that promise has absolutely held true in my experience. Zero sensitivity and a brighter, whiter set of teeth. Thank you so much for powering today's episode, High Smile. And here is the rest of it with Nicola. I want to move forward to today and I'm going to start with the instrument you play because it's pretty extraordinary that you play. Um, I'm probably not going to pronounce this correctly, so sorry for anyone who's listening and really knows. But um, the 1717 Gariel Stradivarius. Is it Gariel or Gariel? Perfect. Gariel. Wonderful. (laughs) How does it feel to have such a historically significant instrument in your possession? Um, It's a huge responsibility (laughs) and sometimes quite terrifying and... Um, just something that I am filled with gratitude for um, on a continuous basis. It's um, um, an instrument that I fit with very fast and was very comfortable with very quickly and um, have never looked back since. And I just count my blessings. Um, the The instrument um, obviously has such an incredible history and um I mean, I've had a lot of um, really unique circumstances with it where previous owners, um, you know, have had 
uh, hugely varied careers playing with all sorts of different um, musicians and chamber musicians and conductors. And um, perhaps some of those people have not realised that the instrument was passed on to me. And then I have met those same musicians mm -hmm. later in life and I've been playing alongside them. And then at some point they realise the instrument that I'm playing, you know, and it's so connected to um, to those kind of earlier memories for them. And it's it's one of the humbling things about, about the instrument itself, but about the music we play too. The, um, the kind of cross-generational um, connections that mm. make time seem um, like, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot, uh, a lot less time has passed mm. between um, Beethoven and myself, you know, it, it, it kind of condenses that, that period of time so much. And it's, um, it's a real privilege to be able to, um, you know, interface with that kind of history yeah. in the way that we do. And I can also imagine any sense of imposter syndrome. Well, you, you tell me, but I would imagine any sense of imposter syndrome is slightly wiped away when you're holding something like that in your hands. I don't know <laughs> if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we can all feel that um, regardless of, of um, like external, um, you know, particulars. <laughs> in 2020, you won a Grammy. Yes. How did you celebrate that enormous achievement? And also, are you someone who treats yourself in some way if you've done something noteworthy? To win something like a Grammy, I have no, and, and this, and this, I don't want this to sound spoiled or, um, or like ungrateful. It's just a, a question of, of, of personal internal values. I don't feel um, pride in the the winning of of anything that somebody mm. else decided i i should get um and and that's just because um i don't feel like my my um the, the actions or like achievements that i can actually control um i don't feel the direct connection and it sounds mm. it sounds really odd but um, to me, like if, if I if I come off stage and I've actually really played well and I'm um, I've had a marked improvement in certain things, um, the feeling that I have then of just pure um, like like peace, I guess, and um, that is something that I, uh, I that is the reward. You don't you don't need another reward than that you can relive the music in a way that um that um allows you to um you, you can re relive the music in a way that allows you to um kind of re-experience continually the the emotionality of mm -hmm. that that music and you feel that you maybe understood something that you didn't understand previously and that you've managed to um kind of negotiate your your psychological state and physical state and and the 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 pressures of performance and you've managed to to be as um you know as as unmyopic as possible mm. and like all of these types of things that that um you know when people talk about their their internal values relationships or family or um all of these things like to me actual happiness or satisfaction that's where it exists in feeling like mm. i i played well mm. <laughs> and and that, that was able to to communicate music to a certain degree let's talk about the benedetti foundation so you started it before the pandemic hit but i can imagine that it's been incredibly valuable 
as a resource during this time. You had over 7,000, this is correct, 7,000 participants from 66 countries attending in one week alone last May. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do through the foundation and how you've adapted to make it virtual now? Uh, yes, so that that's correct. And um, we've had um, a huge amount of, um, well, I would hope we have had a huge amount of impact within the last the last year, despite not being able to physically get together. Um, but we have a sort of, um, uh, you know, ambitious and uplifted vision for um, the future of music education. And um, we are, um, you know, politely uh, critical of some of what music education does look like and the experience for people. Mm. Um, huge amount of focus on on playing instruments, but the teaching of the instruments um, doesn't allow for any real improvement. So there's frustration that sets in very quickly. Um, but on the flip side, there are um, people who have you know, experience and the resource and the, um, the the training and ability to teach these things phenomenally well. And what we uh, want to do is is um, kind of shout to the rooftops, exposing their work and um, making it as widely available as, as possible for as many people as possible. And for anyone who's listening who isn't massively au fait with classical music and doesn't really know a lot about it, what advice would you give to foster a sort of new relationship with it? Are there particular pieces that you think are really good entry level or is there a way of approaching music that you think might be helpful? I mean, I, I think um, explore far and wide to begin with. Um, there's all sorts of um, curation services now online. Try to find one of those, you know, where somebody has picked 10 pieces of music for you to listen to. Start start there. Um, but also don't feel that, um, don't, don't feel intimidated. It is complex music. It is longer form music. It's not, you, you don't have to like it immediately. Um, start, some things that you invest more, time in and you begin to, to to like and deepen your relationship to over time those are the things that will um be with you forever and will have a lifetime of um of 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 content uh, to, to to give to you they'll have a they'll have a lifetime of of um, pleasure and stimulation to give to you um and you know that that's one of the 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 phenomenal experiences you have studying so much classical music is it's it's endless uh capacity to to surprise and um to morph into something you didn't know it was and um i would say so so don't expect to like everything immediately and don't let that put you off if, mm -hmm. if you want to have a deeper dialogue to listening and if you want to have a deeper dialogue with music one that doesn't have to satisfy you within five minutes of listening to it. You know, one that that requires something of your investment. Um, it will be so worth it, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the rewards will be so phenomenal. You've spoken about the importance of maintaining the physical and mental health of a classical musician, and I wondered how you go about safeguarding yours. Uh, I I've been. Um, blessed with a fairly strong constitution mentally and um, although I'm 
very reactive and um and uh i would say uh quite like i, I can be quite tumultuous in in how i respond to things and very emotional about things um i've i've never i've never had any prolonged periods of time where my mental health has has uh, struggled at all um physically however um i've had a lot of issues and um have had to work through all sorts of bouts of discomfort or weakness or um i mean these things are mm. completely connected to the brain of course mm. and um they are um inextricable from your your mindset but they manifest for me physically but it's something that i through a huge amount of mind work actually have improved enormously over the last couple of years and um a level of sort of physical discomfort or disorientation that i used to feel um i haven't felt in such a long time so that's an enormous um mm. kind of breakthrough for me actually and was there any particular discipline or method that you found worked really well uh yes i it's it's again it's not very um it's it's not very specific and that it can't be um just kind of boxed up into a little neat package mm. um that i just take out every day you know it's it's a really deep um um process that's led by um thought and that grounds your body um it kind of lowers your center of gravity um has a has a you know led by your mind it's it's convincing your um your arms and shoulders and your upper body that often live quite superficially you know especially if we're thinking a lot or we have any level of you know pressure or nervousness or anxiousness we kind mm. of um, breathe short and live in our upper body and it's it's a whole process of trying to kind of sink all of that further into the earth and and just root um yourself more successfully um but it's something you have to really believe will have an impact in order for it to have an, an mm, impact mm. um have you ever practiced yoga because that sounds quite similar to some of the grounding techniques that i've done in yoga as well i have i've spent a lot of time practicing yoga um and pilates and all all sorts of different um uh you know connected but separate methods of mm. of kind of strengthening and understanding your body i do find them helpful but um uh i, I don't i i have a kind of cycle of always pushing myself a little bit too far and then mm. my lower back hurts and then you know something <laughs> kind of goes wrong so um so i um i tend not to be um too um connected to specific exercises kind of like my approach to practicing that mm -hmm. i was telling you about you know that sort of how can like the the most important thing for you to do that will help you improve is manage where you meet the thing mm -hmm. and um so so say there is an exercise or there's um a methodology or where can you find the most intelligent meeting points between who you are how you think etc etc um and that thing you know and and i i feel like not enough um when in my younger years but also 
um, but also now, um, you know, I, I, I feel for so many other young people, not enough time and, and energy is spent on understanding what that, how to connect yourself with these things. We do them in a much more detached way. And if, um, if you bring yourself into the mix more consciously, not in an egotistical way at all, it's actually the opposite. It's like uh, in the most humble position, like what am I bringing to this conversation? Um, you will have far more um, chance of, of development and improvement. You've just articulated something much like the article that you said suddenly made you feel a kinship. That's exactly what I've always thought about exercise or, or physical movement coupled with mindfulness. And um, you just articulated it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, well, uh, before I ask you the questions that I ask all of my guests, I wanted to ask about makeup. I noticed that you like to amp up your eyes and that that's generally what you do. So I wondered whether you learned that. Well, did you learn that from your mom or does someone else give you tips? And what do you use? What, where do you find your product recommendations to? Uh, I mean, oh my goodness. I, well, I would say that I kind of stick basically to Bobby Brown and NARS. Anything that is in the, the kind of um, really good quality, but a bit more in the natural kind of type of brand those two brands and oh I mean I've probably gone through many um many phases of putting far too much makeup on my eyes <laughs> and and then going the opposite extreme but I just think you know I mean gold brown sometimes dark green like those kind of natural colors is is my home um my home space mm. and are you quite good at using brushes and are you quite do you find painting it on quite fun or is it more about the end result for you I mean um I occasionally um I occasionally find it you know what it in a normal day day-to-day -day basis I um would say that I don't I don't like putting a load of I don't like putting a load of makeup on full stop and I don't mm. certainly don't like putting um, a lot of um, makeup on my eyes. Um, I would very rarely do that. Um, even going out for dinner, I wouldn't put on much, but there's something ritualistic about um, getting ready before a concert that is very calming to have three or four more mundane jobs to do mm. um, is, is, um, is uh is is just it's comforting it's a sense of routine i have a banana i have a a tea with um with sugar and i have um you know like i get my makeup out and do my hair and i kind of you know there's like mm. a kind of 
30 minute window of just getting ready that is fun mm. um and well fun's maybe not the I it's it's calming that's what I would say I always iron my dress myself as well and 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 just like you know do do that kind of just that routine of getting ready and um and I think um just like any creature comforts you know even though the period before an orchestra before a performance um is obvious is is often fraught with with a level of um uh you know anxiety or or um you know this pressure um it's still um it's 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 hugely comforting to be doing those things mm, I can imagine yeah and that kind of ritual particularly when you're going to do something it's just so helpful because it t- it sort of gives your mind a meditative state absolutely I think it's just the the fact of the routine and um the fact of the um but yeah I mean I, I think a lot of people find that about makeup anyway like a lot of people would to me it's it's um the, the experiences that I've had in the past of other people doing my makeup is um I've had so many bad experiences that I <laughs> I never find it like a calming experience but a lot of people will say that mm. um you know a lot of people find that it's it's very um therapeutic yeah I'm with you I find it terrifying when someone comes near me with a makeup brush because I've had bad experiences but when I do other people's makeup they always go oh I just like to go to sleep and let it happen so I think it can be very very (laughs) soothing for people if you trust the person wielding the brush I want to ask you the three questions that I finish um with on all these podcasts so the first one is what to your mind has been your greatest triumph either career or personal I, uh, I I would say the triumph for me is 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 not something that sounds very good in a in an interview. You know, um, it's it's tri- the tri- triumph for me is it, they're so internal and connected to my playing, and you know the, the fact that I can um, get through performances of really difficult concertos and not have any physical discomfort and not have any um you know that i can be purely immersed in and and focused on the storytelling of that piece of music that is the most exciting thing in the world you know and no kind of accolade or um like um award or um statistic or anything you know none of that is um it, none of that even even comes close you know mm-hmm. I, I actually if I don't feel like I'm playing a certain way or or the the musically things are going in a certain direction those things actually make me feel worse they don't make mm-hmm. me feel better mm-hmm. and um the other thing that I would say um in terms of um a, a triumph um is is to see the the, the amount um, through the foundation, but also all the work that I did for years and years and years before that, mm-hmm. um, uh, the the amount I've been able to help um, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, um, and uh, to to continue to do that is is um, is my 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 hope. <laughs> so, what one piece of advice would you give your younger self, and what age would you like to return to? I would advise myself to have a lot more trust generally mm-hmm. in a more holistic view of, of learning and way of learning. Um, I, I would, um, I would tell myself to, um, to focus more on, um, on, on that 
um, like long long term improvement rather than um, rather than feeling like I can control every minute, every second. Mm-hmm. Let let go and be in a larger um, kind of m- mindset, a, a, a more um, uh, just just a higher level mindset. Um, and and kind of give over a lot more and have and have more trust. Um, that's what I would tell myself. <laughs> and could you name three people, dead or alive, who you would invite to a dinner party, and why you've chosen them? Martin Luther King mm-hmm. to disrupt everyone and probably upset us all. I would say Beethoven, <laughs> and oh, maybe like a Plato. <laughs> wow <laughs> it's quite a conversation you did at that dinner table I think that would be an awesome conversation <laughs> yeah, oh, amazing. I would love that and is Beethoven your your person in classical music yeah I, deeply troubled soul who mm. who who never gave up hope you know that's 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 the ultimate human being for me um, not somebody who 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 does everything right and who who doesn't get caught in in turmoil and and who you know somebody who is as as light as they are dark and someone who has such heart and soul and and risk they are one hundred percent who they are and they mm-hmm. they present it. Um, they they can't do anything else but just present that authentically and um, and I, I used to I used to feel very differently when I was younger I would look for safer characters my dad was always someone that would be you know an extreme extreme character would come into any environment and and disrupt everything in in, in the best and worst ways you know mm, he would mm. he would he would um, he would uh you knew he was there you always knew he was there you know and and i and i think i um i i wanted so badly for um life to fit in to you know boxes and areas where people weren't offended and where there was no discomfort and where everybody was getting along and doing the right thing Mm. um you know and i always felt like i could make such an impact in in that and actually I would say for the last, you know, six, seven years, I've, I've been far more, um, I, I, I gravitate towards the characters that, that, that shock and delight in equal measures. And, mm. um, and I am not seeking a world without them. And I think it's an, an enormous issue that, that so much of our, our youth culture promotes nowadays, you know, it's, this desire to to need everything to fit within uh, very specific areas of of acceptability, and it's not who the human race will ever be. I could talk to you all day, Nicola. I'm going to let you go. But, um, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank so you so much, much. For all of your time and wisdom. <laughs> thank you. Thank Thanks, you so Nicola. much.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.